I grew up in a church, and so for me, talking to people about what is a church is, well, I've got a context, right? Not everyone did. I'm guessing you've understood that. You've seen that in our culture in Australia. There's a lot of people, a growing number of people, have not grown up in a church and perhaps have no idea what a church is about. Um, We've even got them, if I can put it this way, part of our church. So there are people that we met last year who came along and they're in their mid-30s who have never been to a church before, don't know anything about Christianity and thought, I'll just go along and, and they've been coming along and you're so welcome. We exist in many ways for you. But I grew up in a church, and if I looked around the church that I grew up in, which was about 20 people in a small country town, we were odd, if I can put it like that. Churches are full, though, of odd people. How do you know this? Well, just look at me. Pick me. I'm fairly odd. I'm an odd person. We're all odd. We're odd it is in that sense. And and then I grew up in this church of 20-odd people that I knew well, because Half of them I was related to anyway. And then I moved town to a bigger town. A bigger town I moved to was called Wagga Wagga. And I joined a church there. And the church I joined had about 30 or 40 people at that stage. And it was more odd. I mean, it was, it was, it was fairly straight down the line. They taught from the Bible. They preached Christ. But let me tell you that first experience I went to that church. And, and bear in mind, I, I grew up in a church. So if, if you're new to church and you're new to what church is about, you might find this scary. It's got a rating on it, okay? Scary. I'm not sure what that rating is for church, but we can work one out. I go along, it's my first Sunday at this new church. I, I walk in and I pick a seat, you know, the front rows were free. Um, I, th- I thought that was kind of them, actually, to keep those front rows free at church. I love how Christians do that. And so the front rows are free. I picked a, a front row seat, perfect, like... How much are you going to pay for these at a stadium? And I'm in the, in, the, in the best seat of the house, and I'm in this church, and we're singing the first song, and so I stand up to sing. I'm fairly familiar, we do that in church. Here's where it starts going out of the familiar zone for me. I kind of see it in my peripheral vision. I see this person running. I think, oh, that's strange. And they're running towards me. Me? Me? Here? And I'm singing away as I'm doing, as I sing here. And this person all of a sudden runs and from behind grabs my arms, pulls them out of my pockets, which is a legitimate way to sing, by the way, because you sing with your mouth, pulls them out of my pockets and then holds my arms and makes me clap to the song. Do you think I'd go back? Would you? I stuck around because I thought, yeah, that's a bit odd. And this person was odd, but so am I. I love that church. I still love that church. I've grown to love the people in that church. As people here that become members and stay, grow to love one another. Because what we saw in that church, what I saw, is what we see in Acts 16, is what we see in Reforming Church. And here's the big idea. Jesus saves and gathers all sorts of people. Jesus saves and gathers all sorts of people including me, including you, by God's grace. And as he does that, we see a church planted in the book of Acts, in Acts 16. 
we see a church started. Um, Reforming Church, the one that you're kind of in right now, us, this building is not the church, the church is the people, but we're in Reforming House, here's Reforming Church. We are 10 years old this coming February, so we just turned nine. You know what nine-year-olds are like, I'm nearly 10! I'm nearly double figures, we're excited! We're 10 years old as a church, we started this church by God's grace nine years ago. And we're a church plant, and what's a church plant? It's, I think it's kind of Christian lingo, it's like a start-up for church. But here's the difference between a start-up language and church plant. We planted the gospel in people's lives. So when we started, we, we said, what is the thing, what is the, the power that actually sees people move from death to life, from darkness to light? What is the thing that sees people move into Jesus' people, into being a church? It is hearing the good news of Jesus, believing it, that's the gospel. And so we planted that gospel, we, we, we spoke with people, we preached, we, we did Bible studies, we ran life courses, we did all sorts of things, we door-knocked. It's not as fashionable these days, we did it, all of South East Bendigo. And we planted the gospel in people's lives. And as we did that, a church was formed. Friends, that is Acts 16. That is Acts 16. We're in Acts 16 for a few reasons. We're very intentional here. We're in Acts 16 because we're soon, next week, going to start, for those of us who will be around next week, reforming, we're going to be in a series in the book of Philippians. And in Philippians, we see this church was started in Acts 16. This is where the Philippian church was planted. And when we think church planting, we think, well, wonderful personalities, slick presentations, excellent websites and all those sorts of things. But when you look at church planting in Acts 16, it's messy, it's rough. There's jail time involved. The starting of a church is the planting of gospel in all sorts of people's lives, starting with whatever your financial status. Have a look with me and we're going to start there. Uh, You'll see there at verse 11... This context, of course, Paul and Silas have been, had this call to go to Macedonia, Philippi is in modern day Greece, and as they go, they arrive, they pick an opportunity to talk with some locals. And so there's no synagogue there, it seems to have a local gathering of Jews, you've got to have uh, ten or more men, but there's no synagogue, so they go down to a local gathering, and it's on the Sabbath, they go to the riverside, and it's a place of prayer, it seems, and there they meet a woman, Lydia. And perhaps it's, she's listening to them, others are kind of doing their thing, but she's having a listen to the gospel. And as they speak the gospel to her, wow, what happens? They speak about Jesus. And do you see what happens? Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She hears about Jesus. And the Spirit takes the word of Christ and opens her heart. It does what only God can do. And as this happens, we see the first person of this church plant, Lydia. Now, Lydia is a seller of purple goods in that day and age. Uh, Perhaps it's kind of the the kind of the ancient equivalent, first century equivalent of Maya. You know, so she's she's a, a business person, and perhaps she's a bit more wealthy. At least she's middle class. And there's a temptation for us as churches, as Christians, to aim just for the middle class, isn't it? Because, well, they've fairly got their lives together and we can just share the gospel with them. 
But notice something else that happens for us and the church then. It's tempting to think the middle class won't be interested. That's why they're middle class. Someone once said of Australians, why would Australians want heaven when they already live there? We live in a country that is by and large, friends, it's paradise. Like, we've got the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast, we've got all the coasts. We've got the Great Barrier Reef, you want to live in a hot climate, I know some of you enjoy living in the north, you want to live in the cold, you go south. You want to live where there's no other people, we got that. You want to live where there's lots of people, yeah, try that as well. We live where your dreams can come true. We live in paradise. And so it's said of Australians, and particularly Australian middle class, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need heaven? I have already got it. And that perhaps could be Lydia, although she's a worshipper of God and she's probably, and by God's grace, the Lord's opened her heart, she now sees this ain't cutting it. And so Lydia turns to Jesus whom she knows can only offer true paradise. We live the lie that my wildest dreams will come true if I just have that job, that house, that land package. Once I get that car or two of them, my wildest dreams will come true, my life will be happy, and then when it gets sad, I need a holiday. But then when I get sad after the holiday, just plan the next one. And we've, we've, we've soaked up, we've swallowed the lie that this life will make me happy. A social commentator said, it's incredibly interesting that you look at the West, by the way, that's where we live, that's us. We live in the West. We are the wealthiest generation in the history of humanity. And yet we're the most depressed, anxious, sad, and scared scampering after things that make us happy. We pop pills, we drink liquids, we do all sorts of things to make ourselves happy, and yet we've got everything. You've got to ask the question, why, haven't you? Why? How can a people that have everything in human history, humanly speaking, we are the pinnacle of what your grandfathers and mothers hoped for. We've got everything, and yet we're incredibly unhappy. Makes you want to look into what Jesus has got on offer, doesn't it? That's Lydia. She gets saved. And you notice what happens with Lydia? And we're going to see this in Philippians. This is going to be a big part of our series. She is the start of a joyful community. We nickname it the church. And as the start of this joyful community, she starts straight away into the ministry of hospitality. Hospitality was a bit hard the last couple of years, wasn't it? There was something going around, I hear, and it meant we couldn't kind of hang out with each other. But now hospitality, look, this is the opportunity for us as a church to see that hospitality is so core to the gospel. On our featured resources desk, you'll see next to the, that's at that welcome desk there, next to the Bibles, you'll see a featured resources. There's three books there I really recommend that will help us. And everything you see today, if you want to do further reading, help us. And one of those books is by Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The Gospel Comes with a, a House Key. And it's all about hospitality. Rosary Butterfield was saved out of a... Uh, she was a, a practicing lesbian. She was a lecturer at university. She, she met a Presbyterian minister and his wife. And they just had her over dinner, week in, week out. And she got saved, like Lydia. Lord opened her heart. 
And now she's married to a Presbyterian minister and she does the same thing. She has people in her home and what, her, what she contends is this, is hospitality is how we share the gospel with people. Now I get this, I absolutely do. We're all in different seasons and there's different reasons why we find that difficult at times. Reforming, I know you, you know us. We have three kids, we're just exiting that really hard stage. Now I say that because some people are like teenagers and they're like, you think you're exiting that? <laughs> this guy knows nothing, Right? We're exiting that really like intense phase where everyone is screaming at the same time. Hospitality can be challenging. But we also need to see this, and Rosaria Butterfield talks about in her book, hospitality is not entertainment. See, what we think is we think we need to entertain people. And entertainment says the house must be perfect, you children must be perfect, and I must be perfect. Then you can come into my home. That's entertainment. That's not hospitality. Hospitality is, house is a mess. The children are just a mess. I'm a mess. But you're welcome here. In fact, you might be messy as well. You're welcome here. We haven't got much. We've got some leftovers in the fridge. Let's just eat. Because what is the key to hospitality? It's sharing the gospel, sharing our lives. It's 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. That is the shape of our church. Sharing our lives with people as we share the gospel which means all sorts of people are welcome here, including the next person we meet in Acts 16. We move from the middle class, who need to see they haven't got everything, they need Christ, to someone who literally lives as she has nothing because she's a slave. We go to verse 16. And in verse 16 we read... As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. This is agonising for us to watch. And I, I suspect we could be thinking, well, at least in, in Bendigo or wherever you're from in Australia, we don't see much of this today. I want to contend that, not just by analogy, I think we see a lot of this today. This, this girl, is, she's owned by people, she's trafficked by people, she's in many ways powerless, although they might look at her and say, look at her power, she can tell your fortune, she'll tell you your life, she's, she's got the spirit of divination, look at her power, they will say, she's powerful, actually she's enslaved. And where do we see this today? Friends, I know we've got kids with us, but I'll, let me just speak so you can understand. We see this wherever we see pornography, wherever we see the enslavement of women, of girls, to this kind of thing. And you know what the industry says as a result? I know you know what pornography is. It's on our devices, it's everywhere. But you've probably heard what the industry says as a result. It's just for entertainment. It doesn't hurt anyone. They want it. We pay them well. They have power. It's the same lies. Those women are enslaved. They're trafficked. They're owned by the industry. The so-called power and liberation of women to do that is actually not. It's a powerlessness that they can't escape. It's a lie. And we enable it if we just stand by and at least not pray for their release. 
and put that sin to death in your life if it's nearby. Friends, I'm reformed and I love being reformed. But what I notice, because I'm on Twitter for various reasons I don't understand, I'm still there, but what I've noticed as I read Christian news from around the world and even in reform circles is we can have people that do all the heresy hunting in the world and they'll build big platforms criticising anyone who doesn't have any orthodoxy that's straight down their line only to be discovered later as someone who is secretly harbouring a porn addiction, who is actually saying, well, that's okay in my life, I can have sexual sin in my life and that's okay and never admit that. And by the way, we are all sexual sinners and we can admit that. They act like... This thing over here is the most important and therefore I am righteous because I'm right on this particular theological topic and yet I have this in my life where I won't allow it to be touched because it doesn't hurt anybody. We have church leaders who have abuse that has happened in their churches for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and now denying it when it's clearly happening and won't even address it. This girl is trafficked. She should be helped. The powerless should be helped. Justice and righteousness should be brought. That's what churches do. We of all people should be leading the way for the victims of abuse. We of all people should have Safe Church on the front page of our website. You want to see it? Reforming Church. Go to the footer. It's right there. We should have this up front and center and personal because it's personal. We should care for those who have been hurt. And we should pray for their salvation. And the salvation of their traffickers. That's what happens here in Acts 16. She's saved. Like, it's amazing. Um, I hope it's okay to say, but when we talk about Bible readers, they, they like to ask, how, how is this bit meant to be read? So Sarah did ask me, we're talking about the, the, the traffic girl and she cries out. Is she saying that as a way of proclamation or a way of negation? And I think, I think she's saying that because if you track the way the demons operate in the scriptures, when they cry out in the gospels, they cry out to antagonize. So yes, what she says is relatively true, isn't it? So she cries out because she's got the spirit of divination. She can see these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Verse 17. But that's not her talking. That's the spirit of divination. That's the demon. And why is the demon doing that? Why is the spirit doing that? Because if an evil spirit can speak some truth and be believed, then lies spoken by the same spirit can also be believed. If he can get them to believe what is false, he can at least convince people that's where the power is. Look at the spirit of divination. Look at me. I'm where the power is. Yes, I'm declaring these people have got something, but that's where the power is. That's what the spirit wants. And after this, Paul has had enough. As Alf Stewart used to say on Home and Away, it's been a while since I've watched it, he used to say, oh, I've had a gutful. And he's had enough. Enough. And so he turns around and having become, verse 18, greatly annoyed, said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very moment, that very hour. Because the power of Christ is greater than the power of demons. 
But when the owners see that their trafficked girl is not their property anymore, when the industry sees that they're not going to make money anymore, the gig is up. So what do they do? Oh, these people are taking away our freedoms, our liberties to have an industry like this. Does this sound familiar? These people are taking away our industry liberties to make money in a free world. Does that sound familiar? They will use their freedoms against the girl that's been trafficked. They will use their freedoms against the people who have liberated her from this slavery. And so they throw them in prison. Seems natural to me, if you're of the world. They throw them in prison. And as we see, like the gospel's unstoppable. We see this in the book of Acts. It's probably the whole theme of the book of Acts. But as Lydia is saved, the slave girl is saved... Now they're thrown in prison. Oh, now no more people can get saved. If you don't see the power of the gospel. What happens next? Paul and Silas are in prison. Like this is one of those great turn the world upside down moments, isn't it? Like we think in our world that if we just shut churches down, if we bring in a law that says you can't pray for people in a certain way, if we just do a few things and tweak the legislation, we'll just stop this whole Christian thing. We'll just stop it. Friends, take a look at Acts 16. You can put the gospel in prison and it explodes like TNT. You can't stop the power of the message of Jesus. Look what happens. Paul and Silas are in prison, right? They're praying and they're singing praise to God and the other prisoners are listening to them and then there's an earthquake and all breaks loose in the prison. The jailer assesses the situation. For a Roman jailer in his day and age, like his job is riding on this, if you're a jailer and your prisoners get free, it's like you had one job. And if you can't do that one job, that's it for you. Probably you're out of that job, and let's just say it's terminal. So the jailer sees what's coming. He sees the writing on the wall, so to speak, and so he's about to kill himself when all of a sudden, all it takes, in a moment of despair for our neighbours, all it takes is for one Christian to say, I'm still here. Isn't that incredible? Think about your neighbours your family, your friends, even those who have, they're not put you in prison, but they've put you in the, in the corner of, I'm just not going to talk to you about that, or I'm cold-shouldering you. When they have a moment of despair, will you be there to say, whatever you've done to me, I'm still here. I'm with you. I didn't leave you. I didn't escape. I didn't go and find some way to get back at you. I'm still here. That's what he needed in his moment of absolute and utter despair for someone to say, I'm still here. And it's a Christian. Makes sense. Look at verse 28. The Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, fell before down Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds and he was baptised at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Do you see the jailer's question? 
What must I do to be saved? In other words, he's saying to prisoners who have stayed after the massive prison break that could have been, this is his question. How can I be safe like you? It's an incredible question, isn't it? Because of all the people in a prison, who is the safe one? It's usually the jailer. It's the people not in prison. The people in prison, they're not safe. They're on some sort of row, death row, judgment row, some row. The singing is not lost on the jailer. He, he, he knows how it happened he, and he asks, how can I be saved? And notice this, he wasn't asking, how can I be safe in earthquakes from now on? He's not asking for a manual on how to be safe in this life. He's asking, how do I be safe forever, for eternity? He's most likely heard about the judgment of God, the goodness of God, and the salvation of God. We sang, we've sung two songs this morning. We're going to sing a third and then a fourth. And in every song, what you'll see is the goodness of God, the problem of my sin, your sin, and the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. He's heard this in song. He's seen it. And he knows he needs to be safe. Why? Because here's what he gets and here's what you and I need to get. Here's what Australia needs to get. This place is not safe. Friends, I think before COVID, we all were lulled into thinking this place was safe. We were lulled into thinking, I get to plan my life. I will plan my work, my play, my rest. I'll plan where I live. I'll plan how I'll travel. I'll plan my holidays. And I'll even plan that I, I think I might die around 80. Give it 90. I don't want to be in a nursing home. But maybe if my friends are there. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I reckon I'll probably die of old age. That's how I'm going to go. Happy and content with a smile on my face. Listening to Dirks Bentley, that's how I'm going to go. Like, sorry, that came out, that was me. Um, and then we realised, actually, this place is not safe. Because a little virus we couldn't see would come along and, well, it disrupted everything. And some people died. It's random. And not only that, um, like, I thought wars were done with. Why, why, why is this happening? Why Ukraine? And not only that, then we thought, well, goodness, um, there's a country to the north getting a little bit close for our liking these days. And not only that, we are the most fractured and divisive culture than we've ever been. The way we see women treated and domestic abuse, all this was it ever safe? Was this place ever safe? You can have an earthquake, you could have a car accident, you could this afternoon, through no fault in your own planning, drive to an intersection somewhere and you stop, but they don't. There's a family from our church not here today because they're up at Muldura at a funeral where a police officer was on a night patrol, 10 o'clock at night, she did not plan as she put that uniform on that day that that would be the last day of her life. No one can plan for that. It's never been safe. We are one breath, one moment away from stepping into eternity. And the jailer says, how can I be saved? That's the key question of our lives. And Paul and Silas tell them about the only safety that's found in Jesus. 
He believes and he and his household are baptised. They receive the sign of God's grace to us in Jesus. God is gracious in Christ. Way back from the covenant promises to Abraham we saw in Genesis 17, for him and his offspring, right through to all those who would come to Jesus, God promises by his grace to save. This is how the church at Philippi was started. It's how all churches are started. And I hope you can see churches are full of all sorts of people. Middle class people, once drug addicts, alcoholics, addicted to sex, pornography, whatever it is kind of people. And even people who thought life was safe and then have had to been disorientated in a moment and realised I need to find real safety. Even those kind of people, perhaps that's you. But when you look at a church now, when you look at us, when they looked at one another, do you think Lydia could walk into church and look at that once slave girl and think, well, at least I'm not like her? Do you think Lydia could look at slave girls ever the same again? Do you think a slave girl could look at the jailer who has been an authoritarian and an awful person, perhaps abused people? Do you think a slave girl could look at that person in the same way again? No, not once you've seen the power of Christ. Be they enslaved to drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, when we look at one another and we see a whole bunch of odd people, we see Jesus' handiwork. He saves all sorts, including me, including you. Which means all sorts can now go to our world. Here's what our world needs. See, the Philippian jailer, he gets it. He looks at Paul and Silas. When they could have run, what do they do? They stay. Why? Because they've got what he needs. They've got what he needs. Security that's beyond the safety of escaping a jail because they know the one who went into the darkness for them. Paul and Silas know the one, Jesus, who went into that jail, so to speak, for us. He went into the darkness for us. God himself, who had immeasurable riches in heaven, is the one who came to earth. Jesus lets himself be imprisoned, beaten, and eventually goes to die on a cross. He does this for our safety. For our salvation. And Paul will later write to this church in Philippians. Turn with me to Philippians 1. He'll later write to this church and he'll say this Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseas and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from when? Verse 5, the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When was the first day? That's Lydia. That's the slave girl. That's the Philippian jailer. Lydia had them in their home. The slave girl was freed and part of the home. 
And then there's the jailer who also has them in their home from the first day. Jesus saves and gathers all sorts of people. He is calling you now. Come to Jesus, would you? Come to Jesus, whatever sort of person you are. Middle class, messy. Come to Jesus and be saved and gathered too. Let's pray and sing together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our church family. We thank you for our family of Reforming Church, but also all those from here to Philippi that you saved and gathered. And so this is our prayer. We make our prayer with joy because of one another, oddballs that we are, all sorts that we are, but all saved in Christ Jesus that we are. Thank you. And we pray with this safety that Jesus gives us that you who began a good work in us that you would continue to do so, please save and gather all sorts of people. Bring it to completion on that last day in Christ Jesus. We're asking this. Please save more by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.